Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, tonight, I like to always say it's like this. This is like a big living room, and we're, we're, we're God's kids. We're God's family. And um, we've gathered here together in a nice, heated, and when necessary, air-conditioned building. Um, we're seated. It's comfortable. We can just take in the Word. We can take it in together. Uh, we're in the book of Genesis. Uh, we, we believe, perhaps, that we'll be able to go through chapters 16 and 17 tonight. Uh, if not, no big deal. Because if we just do 16, chapter 17 will be waiting for us next time. So we're just taking our time and we're trying to plow deep. Whereas before, the Bible from 30,000 feet, you remember, we flew over one book per night sometimes or, or two nights it took us to do the entire book of Genesis. Well, we're like in week 12 and uh, we're in chapter 16 and 17. So we're trying to really extract as much information as we can. And, and I've always loved Wednesday night. I consider it really the core of our fellowship. We gather, we plow through the Word together, and uh, we, I hope, have read it in advance before we meet and make it more meaningful. So let's um, have a word of prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, we um, present ourselves as living sacrifices to You, holy, acceptable, which is our reasonable service. It's the smartest thing to do. And as we're here in your presence and in the presence of one another, we believe that through the Word of God, we're going to hear you speak to us. You're going to give us not only information, but inspiration. Your Spirit will help apply these things to our lives and our situations. Things we've been wondering about, questioning, wanting answers to. And we trust, we believe that your Spirit will be here to do exactly that in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 16. I recall traveling with a friend from Jordan to Germany. And uh, we landed in Austria. Actually, it was Franklin Graham that I was with. And we touched down in Austria. And we was just about an hour on the plane. And then we were going to take off to Germany. And Franklin said, hey, have you ever driven from this airport to the city we're going to end up in Germany? I think it was Frankfurt. Have you ever driven this a beautiful stretch? You ought to get off the plane now, not take the leg of the journey to Germany, but rent a car. It's only two or three hours. It's one of the most scenic drives you can do. So I thought, you know what, why not? That sounds really good. Well, I eventually talked him into doing it with me. I said, why don't you get off the plane too and, and we'll take that drive together. And so we did. It ended up to be nine-hour drive. <laughs> and we didn't get to our hotel in Germany till about 2, 2.30 in the morning. It ended up not being a shortcut, but the long way around, a detour. We wasted precious time. In chapter 16... Abram and his wife Sarai take a detour when it comes to the will of God. Once again, the man of faith, the father of them that believe, displays a shallower kind of faith than we might expect. Taking the long way around, it actually cost him 
And to this day, we are experiencing the fallout and the ramifications of that choice. Now, some people prefer not to fly airplanes, but they prefer to drive. And it's not because of economy, it's out of fear. They actually feel safer in a car than they do in an airplane. I know a businessman that drives from coast to coast. He won't fly, he'll drive. He feels safer. But his feelings are misleading. Because the studies reveal that flying in jet aircraft is seven times safer than driving in a car. So going 600 miles an hour, careening through space through a metal tube at 35,000 feet, is safer than an eight-cylinder machine that never leaves the earth. It might feel as if it's unsafe to get in that airplane, but it's actually safer. I'm sharing that because there's a parallel with the will of God. Sometimes when we just trust the Lord, it feels really scary. It feels unsafe. We'd rather live by sight rather than faith. But the safest way to navigate through your life is to live a life of faith, trusting in the Lord rather than what you can only see. Well, let's, let's find out what happens. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. That was a mistake. It's not always a mistake. Sometimes it's the best thing a man can do. But in this case, it was a mistake. They were unable to have children. We're presented with that in chapter 11, when they're first introduced to us. You remember that old saying, have you ever heard it, God helps those who help themselves? Where does that come from? Because when I grew up, my father said, you know, the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. And I thought it was in the Bible. And I read it, and I read it, and I read it in different translations, and I looked in the concordance to try to find that verse, God helps those who help themselves. And I never found it in the Bible. Jesus didn't say it. Paul never wrote of it. The prophets never declared it. Now, maybe it's in First Fleshalonians, but it's certainly not in any of the real books of the Bible. It's one of those phantom verses made up, imposed by people who don't know what the Bible says. I actually did a little research and discovered it was Ben Franklin who said that. It wasn't God at all. But we get this mistaken notion that if we set the gears in motion, we start moving, eventually God will see that we're serious and we're moving and catch up to us and then take us all the way through once he sees that we're serious and we're going to work hard. Well, here's a case of people trying to help themselves, or should I say, help God out, help God fulfill a promise. Because God said you're going to have a child, and we see here that his wife, Sarai, decides to do it this way. Now, before we 
completely trash Abram and Sarai in this. Let's assume the highest. Let's, let's imagine that they had really good intentions. So let's imagine a conversation. They're in the tent one night, burning a candle, having dinner, I don't know, lamb and olives and hummus and pita bread. That sounds so good. And, and they're having this conversation and Sarai looks at Abram. Now she's past 75 and says, sweetheart, now I know that you're really into this having a kid thing. And I know you really like me to have a child, but sweetheart, look at me. I'm over 75 years of age. Ain't going to happen, sweetheart. Now, sweetie, A.B., what exactly did God say when he made all those promises to you? Can you recall? Oh, sweetheart, it's like yesterday. Of course I can recall. God said specifically that from my own body, I'm going to have a son. Okay, well now, that helps, uh, A.B., because God said it's going to come from your body. God said nothing about it coming through my physical body. So because it's going to come through your body and not necessarily mine, I propose we help God out a bit on this. I have Hagar, this Egyptian maid. She's much younger. She's capable of bearing children. You go into her and you have a child and we'll adopt that child and we'll say that's God's promise fulfilled. And it says that Abram heeded his wife. Now, you just have to imagine what it was like those 11 years they've been waiting for this promise. 11 years. It's hard to wait on the Lord. It's hard to wait and wait and wait and wait. Because your flesh gets really antsy. And Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And we have a tendency when we've waited on the Lord and waited for the Lord, when we don't get what we think we should get, to just push it a little bit, make it happen, and impose our own scheme and designs and produce something of the flesh rather than the spirit. That's what they're doing. They've been waiting 11 long years since God first said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, I imagine that every time Sarai had a twinge of pain or walked a little bit differently that Abraham noticed and said, Aha, you must be pregnant. But she wasn't pregnant. And year after year after year after year, she wasn't pregnant. And so now this. Hey, this is crazy, she's saying. Let's just get on with our life. Let's have a child. If God promised that through your body you'd have a son, He didn't say anything specifically about my body. So just take Hagar. Then verse 3. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. After Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. And so he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Where did Hagar come from? Where is she from, it says? Egypt. So they must have picked her up on that little foray down into Egypt when they didn't trust God during those famine years, you remember? 
it seems that that's when she arrived into their household. You know, the past has a way of catching up with you, doesn't it? She becomes pregnant. So now it's pretty obvious that the real problem isn't with Abram, it's with Sarai. Now maybe up to that point they didn't really know because they were unable as a couple to have children. So was the problem with her womb or was he not virile? Was he unable to have children? Well now, the proof. He has no problem bearing a child with a fertile woman. And so it would mean in ancient cultures that Sarai must somehow be cursed. And anger rises up in her heart. And moreover, Hagar despises Sarai, her mistress. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. We know this problem too well, I believe. In Galatians 3, it says, well, Paul asks, Having begun in the Spirit, are you now trying to be made perfect in the flesh? God has started something. Are you now trying to bring it to completion by your flesh? How many times in your own situation, in my own situation, have we stepped in to help God fulfill His promise? And sometimes even counsel the Lord. Give God advice as if He needs it. Maybe you haven't done it verbally, but I bet you've thought things like, God, I know you're busy running the universe, step into my office. Um, there could be a couple of things you just have overlooked. Well, let me educate you. I've gone to college. I can help here. And we might step in with an agenda and with a plan that is simply trying to fulfill God's promise by a work of our own flesh. What does it say to us in Proverbs chapter 3? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Well, they're not doing that here. There's this great old Jewish proverb that says, It's better to ask which is the right road ten times than to take the wrong road once. They take the wrong road And as I mentioned, the repercussions are still felt today. We'll see why. And Sarai said to Abram, now watch this. Here's Sarai. My wrong be upon you. Whoa. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. Well, now whose idea was it to begin with? It was her idea. It was Victor Hugo who said, Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. So here's Abram. Oh, okay, sweetheart, whatever you say, dear. And then he does it, and then this happens, and she blames him. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. According to ancient custom, she was the property of Sarai. That's what he meant by that. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Wow. It was um, the Scottish poet and author, George MacDonald, who said, In whatever man does without God, he will fail miserably or succeed more miserably. Here's Abram and Sarah with a plot, with a plan, and they succeed so miserably. Helping God out. 
And what do I mean by that? What I mean is it's been 4,000 years since this, and we are still experiencing the Arab-Israeli conflict, the seed of Ishmael and the seed of Isaac at war with one another, with suicide bombings, with problems in the Gaza, with the 9-11 bombings, uh, and America's policies concerning Israel. And it seems that year after year, the focus gets back on that. And this is where it all began. Now, verse 7, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. So she has now traveled all the way down, going toward Egypt. She's trying to go back to Egypt, where she's from, which is nothing but barren desert on this road. She would have died in the wilderness. She wouldn't have made it. So she's by a spring of water in the wilderness. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Now this is, by the way, the first mention, and I'm trying to give you all of the rules of first mention when we come up to them in Genesis. Here is the first mention in all of the Bible of the term, the angel of the Lord. You're going to read about it a lot in the Old Testament. There's conjecture as to who this person is. Some people believe here that it's Gabriel, the one who announced to Mary and to Joseph and to Zacharias all of the events around our Lord's birth. But this is the first mention of the angel of the Lord coming. Now, here's what I love. This is a story of failure. Fumbling, bumbling failure. And yet in the midst of that, we see the mercy and grace of God. The overriding, overruling, intervening hand of God in being merciful and just not letting them go through all of this without some movement of his own hand. And so, the angel of the Lord said, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so that they shall not be counted for a multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears. So every time she would call out her son's name, Ishmael, come on for dinner. Time to go to bed, Ishmael. She would be calling out the remembrance of God's mercy in her life. God hears. The Lord intervened down there by that well. Because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man. And every man's hand against him. And he will dwell in the presence of all his brethren. So rather than just letting her leave the home, maybe die in the wilderness... The angel brings them back to Sarai and Abram, and Ishmael will grow up in the household of Sarai and Abram. God overruling. I don't know who said it, but somebody said, when God can't rule because we won't let him, he always overrules. I love that beautiful verse of scripture in Romans 5. I think it's around verse 20. It says, where sin has abounded, grace did much more abound. It overflowed. And here's an example of God's grace to this woman and her son. And she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, 
Have I also seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Be'er Laheroi, the well of the living God who sees. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So if you were ever wondering where that well was, now you know. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now we have a gap between these two chapters of 13 years. 13 years. By now, Ishmael is a young teenager. Abram is 99 years old, raising a 13-year-old teenager. Have pity on him. Sarai is about 90 years old. And they're raising this child. But it's not over yet. Man, it's just the beginning. Because that son of promise hasn't yet been born into their household. And that's coming. That's Isaac. So Abram isn't going to retire. He's not going to go lawn bowling for the rest of his life. He's going to have more children. Abram was 99 years old. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me. And be blameless. Now somebody once said that um, one of the great things about being 99 is you don't have much peer pressure. Of course, it would be obvious why, right? You wouldn't have many peers. He's 99 years old and the Lord speaks to him. Now we have the very first mention of this title of God. God Almighty. El Shaddai. El Shaddai is mentioned in the Bible about 34, 36 times. It means Almighty God or God the Mighty One or better yet, God the Most Sufficient One. Interestingly enough, the term El Shaddai is found more in the book of Job than any other book in the Bible. It's around this time frame, same era, patriarchal era. Now El Shaddai, it is thought is an old Akkadian word from that whole uh, Semitic, uh, Syrio-Babylonian uh, region. An old Akkadian word that means mountain or breast. And the idea is that some of the ancients would, when they would see hills in the distance, it was as if the earth was flexing its muscle. It represented like a, a buff muscle coming up out of the earth. So here is God saying, I am God, the eternally sufficient one, the divinely buff one, the one who can do anything that you can't do. I'm strong, you're weak, I'm God, you're not. That's how he introduces himself. Now why does he call himself El Shaddai? Because Abram's 99 years old, that's why. He's almost 100 years old. If anybody's feeling weak, it would be Abram. And so God says, let me just tell you who I am, buddy boy. I'm El Shaddai. I have unlimited muscle, man. I can do what no man or no country or no ruler could ever do. It's interesting that the Lord says, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. What does it mean to walk before God and be blameless? The idea is this. Walk or literally live your life knowing that you're living your life in plain view of me. You know how it's like when you're a child 
and you know your parents watching, you act differently, don't you? If you're alone in your room, you act, you act one way. But when your dad is watching you, you act a different way. Abram, you're 99 years old. It's time for you to grow up. Time for you to learn how to walk, buddy. Finally, walk before me, live your life knowing that I'm watching everything you're doing. And be upright, be blameless, be pure, be a man of integrity. I think God tells him this because of Abram's history. When Abram went to Haran for 15 years and waited before he went into the land God told him to, he wasn't walking before the Lord. He was walking before his father and his family. When he went down to Egypt because of the flood, he wasn't walking before the Lord. He was walking before his 318 servants who needed food and water. When he uh, pulled the Hagar stunt in chapter 16 with Sarai, he was walking before his wife, not before the Lord. But here's what's cool to me. He's 99 and God still comes to him and says, You can still walk with me. You know, a new walk with God can begin for you at any age. doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, how old you are, what you've been through. This tonight could be the night of a brand new relationship with Him. A relationship of obedience. A relationship of love. A walk with God can begin at any age. Verse 2. And I will make my covenant between me and you. And I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face. And God talked with him saying, I love that thought. Just humbly before the Lord. Down on his face, wanting to hear from God. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you will be a father of many nations. Now watch this. No longer shall your name be called Abram. But your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I've always supposed that the name Abram was embarrassing to him. Abram means exalted father. How many children did he have while he was called that? Zip, zero, zilch, nada, none. So imagine what it would be like as the caravans would come through and he'd get out of his tent and they'd go, hello, and he'd go, hello, and they'd say, what's your name? And he'd say, I'm exalted father. Oh, wonderful, they would say. How many kids do you have? None. Oh, sorry about that. It was embarrassing to say the name. That was his name. And he tried to have children with his wife way back in Haran, unsuccessfully. Then... Through Hagar, one day Ishmael was born. And he thought probably, all right. Now when somebody says, what's your name? And I say, exalted father, I'll feel good about it. And now, he's got one son and God says, I'm changing your name. I'm not going to have you be called exalted father anymore. Now your name will be father of a multitude. And you can just see Abraham going, no, please, Lord, not not that. Because that would denote that he would have many children. Again, it could be embarrassing. Why is God naming him this before the son of promise comes? 
Why wouldn't God name him that after Isaac is born and he has other children and grandchildren? Then I'd say, okay, I'm going to name you father of a multitude. Because God will often declare his purpose before he does it. And he will do it to stretch the person into using their muscles of faith. Abram, you believe me. Remember that? A couple chapters ago, you believe me. When I said that I was going to make your descendants like the stars of heaven, you believe me and I counted it to you for righteousness. You believe that. Now, do you believe it enough for me to change your name, even at 99, to being father of a multitude? So God, before the effect or the event, calls him this name to stretch him. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations, plural of you, not a nation. Notice, nations of you and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. I will be their God. Last week, when we were back in chapter 15, and I skimmed through the last part of that, the borders of the land were given. Do you remember that? From the river of Egypt, which is Wadi al-Arish, all the way to the Euphrates River. And the borders were outlined in, in that chapter, and it's up on the map. There it is. What you're seeing outlined in yellow is 300,000 square miles God promised them. Now, they have never, ever occupied all that God gave to them. They have only, at the peak of the kingdom under Solomon, occupied 30,000 square miles. And we'll show you what they have in comparison to what God promised them. There it is. Okay, so that is their land. That's what they occupy. That's where they live. The yellow is what God promised that they have never yet occupied. Now, they wouldn't have much luck going to all these neighboring countries now, like uh, Egypt and uh, Jordan and Syria and Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Iran and saying, oh, this is our land, God promised it to us, kindly move out of here. But what I want you to see is this. What God said they would have, they only took one fraction, one-tenth of all that God said he would give to them. And what God told them is this. Every place that your foot walks is yours. That little portion that you saw on the map, that's the only place their foot walked. They obviously, evidently, didn't believe God for all of it. So even at the peak of their kingdom under King Solomon, when he expanded the borders... One-tenth of all that God promised, they enjoyed. Does that at all sound familiar to you? You think of all the promises that God has made you. How many of them are you enjoying? All of them? Half of them? A small fraction of them? What kind of victory are you living in? What kind of cachet of God's promises are you enjoying? I tend to believe we're just living on a small fraction of all that God has for us. Now, God one day will allow them to enjoy all of that 
border that he promised them. And that will be in the earthly kingdom outlined so often in the Old Testament called the millennium in the New Testament. A thousand year reign of Christ upon the earth. It will be then that their borders will be expanded to all that God gave to them. Well, that's just the land. That's part of the covenant, God says, the land that he promised Abram. But not just that, not just property. Notice the promise includes posterity. Notice the plural nations. You know, we often think Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. He is, but he's the father of many more. There's 13.3 million Jewish people on the earth. There's 22 Arab nations with 300 plus million people. All of them trace their lineage back to Abram. That means that today, 5% of the earth's population can trace their genealogy directly to Abraham. So now you know why God says, I'm changing your name to father of a multitude. God has made good on his promise. Verse 9, God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Circumcision was not something invented here. Understand that circumcision had been for generations practiced by nations all around that part of the world in the Middle East. The ancient 6th dynasty of Egypt practiced circumcision. Even into the Roman Empire, the priests of Rome and their offspring were circumcised. The Ammonites and the Moabites. So here you have God taking a, a social practice and turning it into something with spiritual meaning. I love that. It's a social practice. It's something that had meaning to other cultures, but God is sort of redeeming that and letting it apply to a sign of the covenant. Now, he will do that with baptism. Baptism didn't begin with Christians. Jews had practiced ritual baptism for generations, being purified before they would go up to worship. And then John the Baptist did that in a river down in the Jordan. And then later on, they took that symbol of uh, being cleansed for worship, and that ritual purification, and we know it now as Christian baptism, the immersion in water. But it's symbolic. It's an outward sign of a covenant. Now we discover that whenever God makes a covenant, He then provides some kind of a sign, an outward um, indicator. So when you see the indicator, you're reminded of the agreement that God made with people. And so what was the sign of the covenant God made with Noah? A rainbow. Beautiful, colorful. You look at it, it brings a smile to your face. Everybody goes, oh, it's a sign of a deal that God made with Noah. And God made a covenant with Moses and the children of Israel through the law of Moses. What was the sign he gave them? It was the Sabbath. On that day you rest, it's restful, it's peaceful, it's wonderful. Now, to the church, it was the symbol of baptism, the outward sign of an inward reality. 
Now God makes a sign with Abraham. I'm sure that Abraham was not having this in mind when he's thinking God is going to ask him to provide some kind of an outward sign. Remember, he's 99 years old. So just let the impact of this fall in your your ears. 99-year-old man, and God says, it's time to get circumcised. Abram's going, what is this walk of faith all about? I didn't sign up for that. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. Verse 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house, he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. My covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that child shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Wow. Why the eighth day? Interesting, the science tells us that on the eighth day of a child's life, all of the vitamins, all of the nutrients, all of the antibodies, prothrombin is... Is, is present in the bloodstream that causes the clotting of the blood. If you were to circumcise a child, say, at three days old, there would be hemorrhaging. The clotting elements aren't there till the eighth day. That's the perfect day. Verse 15 is the change in his wife's name. Oh, by the way, something just about circumcision. The whole idea behind circumcision is that the life of the flesh that once dominated you is not to dominate you any longer. The symbol of the cutting of the flesh is the repudiation of the fleshly life. Because the foreskin of the male, this was the organ that generated life, is cut showing that, like the Bible says in Psalm 51, in sin my mother did conceive me. I was born in iniquity. But I'm making a covenant with God that the life of the flesh will be pushed back, repudiated, and it will be something that I live now by faith in the Spirit. I'll live in the Spirit, not in the flesh. That's the whole idea behind it. It was a symbol. What happened, unfortunately, among the Jewish people, and it has likewise happened among Christian people with baptism, is they turned it from a symbol into a sacrament. If you perform this sacrament, it will confer some grace, some merit to you, and you will have a right relationship with God. So all you have to do is be circumcised, or all you got to do is be baptized, or all you have to do is keep this ritual. They made a symbol into a sacrament. All along, the Lord said, no, it's inward, not outward. Deuteronomy chapter 10, God says, Circumcise therefore the foreskins of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. That's what it meant. It was inward, not outward. It was simply symbolic. They turned it into a sacrament. And God said to Abraham, that's his new name, God said to father of many nations, a multitude, As for Sarai, your wife, You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Oh, now this is a wonderful change. Sarai means 
domineering and contentious. Imagine when Abram came home one day and said, Hello, princess. That's what Sarah means, princess. And I'm sure her heart just skipped a beat when her husband said, Hello, princess. And that was the name that God gave her. And that was the name her husband and everybody else would call her from then on, princess. By the way, husbands, there's a great name for your wife. Call her your princess. Just try this. Speak kindly unto her. Somebody once said, If you treat your wife like a thoroughbred, she won't ever turn into a nag. Speak kindly to her. She's your princess. And I will bless her. And also give you a son. Now watch this. Give you a son by her. Then I will bless her. And she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. And Abram fell on his face. Now he's doing that a lot. And as an old guy, you wonder, I hope he's not getting too bashed up. He fell on his face and he laughed. And he said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who is ninety-nine years old, bear a child? Now this is not unbelief. This is faith. We've already established that last week when God said, You will bear children as numerous as the stars... Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He believed that promise. This is a laughter of sheer joy. How do I know that? Because God doesn't rebuke him. And in chapter 18, Sarah laughs when she hears this. And it was the laughter of unbelief because the Lord said, You don't believe what I'm saying, do you? But here's an old guy just going, Woohoo! I can't believe it. I dig it. I'm an old dude and she's an old chick and we're going to have a kid. It was something along those lines. The very next verse, there seems to be a sort of a coming back down to earth. Like, you know what? Wait a minute. I'm old and I live in reality. Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. He's an old guy. His son's 13. And, you know, the promise is exciting, but then it's like, you know what? I I think maybe I'm done now. You know, can't, can't you just take Ishmael and do what you said you're going to do just through him? Let him be the one. That you fulfill your promise and let him live before you. God says, no. Now God is going to bless Ishmael. Many nations will come from him. God's hand will be upon him. But the covenant that God wants is through a son of promise, not a son of the flesh. It's going to be through Isaac. Oh, that Ishmael might live. How many times have you said that? You've had your dream, your agenda, and you just say, God... Here, this is what I really want. This is what I produced. Would you just bless my gig, my thing? No, just bless this. I don't want to do anything else. Just bless this. And sometimes God may require the death of your vision. And maybe your prayer should be, Oh, that Ishmael might die within me. 
that my little episode, my little agenda of the flesh would die and I would be open to whatever he wants from me. No, God said, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you will call his name Laughter. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant with his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful, and I will multiply him exceedingly, and he will beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Now, we have something that I neglected to get into last week. I just posed a problem, and I I left it hanging, if you remember at the end of chapter 15. If not, I'll refresh your memory. In the Bible, we have two different kinds of covenants. One is called an unconditional covenant. The other is called a conditional covenant, or if you will, a bilateral and a unilateral covenant. In the bilateral covenant, or the conditional covenant, God has his part, and man must keep his part. If man doesn't keep his part, it negates the deal. Then there's the unconditional covenant. It's unilateral. God says, I'm going to do this, this, and that, period, for you. It's solely his condition that he must keep. So, one covenant called the Edenic covenant, the covenant in the Garden of Eden. What kind of covenant was that? Conditional or unconditional? Conditional, because they got kicked out. They didn't keep their condition. They're out. The covenant of the law of Moses, what kind of covenant was that? Conditional. If you do this, I'll do that. If you fail at that, then you'll have this happen to you. The covenant that God promises to Abraham for the land that is today the land of Israel and for the people, what kind of covenant is it? Unconditional. I will bless you. I will make your name great. Chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. I will do this. I will do that. Five times God says, I will. And he repeats that same kind of terminology in chapter 17. It's unilateral. It's unconditional. Okay, well, now we have a problem. Because God promises them the land through this covenant with Abraham. But later on, in the covenant of Moses, which is a conditional covenant, there's conditions for them in the land. You follow me? So, and I was going to have you turn to it, but we don't have the time. I'll sum it up. In Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, God says, Now, if you obey me and you keep my laws, I will bless you in this land. You'll get a lot of rain in this land. You'll get a lot of crops in this land. You'll subdue all your enemies. If you disobey me, your enemies will subdue you. In fact, You won't have good crops, you won't have good rain, your enemies will come in, take you from this land, and you'll be in captivity. That's chapters 28 and 29 of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, the Lord says, When you are in captivity in another land, and there you pray to me because you realize we've been dumb, disobeying God, and you sort of come to and wake up, and when you're in captivity and you pray to me and repent and turn back in your heart, then I will take you out of the land to which you were taken captive and bring you back into this good land that I promised to you and to Abraham. So, here's how it works. Here's the solution to the problem. The land given to Abraham unconditionally would be theirs 
unconditionally, perpetually, forever. But their tenure in the land, their occupation of the land, was conditional. Well, how how does that work? Doesn't one negate the other? No. God says, here you are, I'll put you in the land. You will disobey me. I will take you out of the land. That's called the Babylonian captivity. You will get spanked in that land, spiritually. You will cry out and ask forgiveness in that land. I will bring you back into this land. Now you'll be good boys and girls in that land. But that wasn't the only time they got expelled. The Romans came in, subjugated them. And when the Romans came in and destroyed the temple and destroyed Jerusalem, there was 2,000 years of the diaspora. Ever heard of the term diaspora? The dispersion of the Jews around the world in hundreds of different countries. So they were dispersed and did not have a homeland And people were looking at that and saying, you know what then, there's not going to really be a literal regathering of a literal people in a literal land. All of that is spiritual and figurative, and it doesn't matter anymore. Until May 14th of 1948, when Palestine was now called Israel, and Jews from all over the world were allowed to go back to their homeland, fulfilling Many promises, including Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11, where God says, I will bring you back the second time into the land. And God says, then I will establish that covenant with you perpetually. And so the land and the people, God promised that as an unconditional and perpetual covenant. Verse 21, I will establish my covenant with Isaac whom Sarah will bear to you at the set time next year. And then he finished talking with him. And God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. We're going to see the fulfillment. Now God narrows it down. Not just, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, but he said, it'll be from your own body, Abraham. And now he says, it'll be from Sarah's own body. You too are going to have a baby. And they will have a baby. It's what they always wanted. But God's going to not just give them what they wanted, but more than they wanted. Not just a kid, but kids and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and nations and kings. Remember the old saying, be careful what you wish for because you might get more than you bargained for? He's going to get more than he bargained for or ever hoped for. I heard about a couple. They were 60 years old. They were married when they were 20, so it was their 40th wedding anniversary. They were so happy, 40 years of married bliss. And a a fairy appeared to them and and said, you've had such a wonderful 40-year marriage. I grant each of you any one wish in the world. The wife blushed and smiled and said, Oh, I know what I want. I've always wanted. I want to travel the world. Instantly, poof, with the wand. And there was tickets to travel the world, cash in hand, passport, everything ready to go. 
And Ferry said to the man, now it's your turn, you can have anything you want. He sort of shyly looked around and looked up and then he said, well, I'd like to have a wife 30 years younger. The fairy said, no problem. Poof with the wand and he was 90 years old instantly. (laughs) Be careful what you wish for. You might get more than you bargained for. But what God will give to Abraham, more than he wished for, more than he bargained for, will be nothing but blessing. He's learned his lessons. Oh, he has more to learn. But the blessing of God will be rich in his life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, such a great thrill to go through two chapters of the life of this man of faith, the one who is to us the father of those who believe. And Sarah, always called that in the New Testament, the role model of a godly woman, as Peter writes about her. And as we read the account firsthand, we recognize that there were many flaws and imperfections in their decision-making processes, in their outlook, in their worldview. They're learning about you, and they're learning what it is to believe in you. But against all odds, as you stack the odds against them and really against you, you will fulfill your promise anyway. Lord, I pray that we would remember that, that um, as scary for some of us as the life of faith might seem, it's really the safest way to navigate through life, to live by your promises, and to not push a fleshly agenda, but to wait on you, to wait for you, and as we do, to renew our strength. Your plan is perfect. You rule, and where we don't allow you to rule, you will overrule. And we see that in this life, this couple's life. And we pray that we'll see it in our life as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.